Please turn to Acts chapter 24 with me as we continue to make our way through the book of Acts and looking this morning at Paul as he defends uh, himself against the accusations of the Jewish leaders. As you turn there, we'll just kind of echo some things that have already been said this morning. First of all, with, with Blake, I want to encourage you to sign up for our, our care group ministry. And uh, I know that can be a little awkward sometimes, as, as Blake mentioned, to, to go out there and see all the, the different uh, sign-ups. We, we know it's not a perfect system. And so if, if you're having some trouble, uh, Blake mentioned he is going to be out there. Others of us are going to be out there. I'll be out there uh, th- this morning. And so if you need some help finding a, a care group, let us know. Uh, actually, I signed two people up this morning without them even knowing yet. Or maybe they know, I don't I I just put two names down in a care group, so I may have done that to you. So uh, be sure to double check. Um, maybe you've already been signed up by someone, so I uh, just realized I hadn't told them yet. Um, so that's one, well, that's another way to sign up for a care group. Uh, speaking of awkward, um, you may have noticed, uh, some, some people asked us about this, you may have noticed some changes to our, our check-in system for our, our children's ministry, and some people have asked us some, some questions about that. There's, a, there's something we try to balance, right? We're trying to, to balance the, the family feel, the relationship that we think is very strong in our church with also keeping our, our children safe, so kind of balancing the, the relational aspect of the church with the security of our, our kids. And the sad reality is, and this is something I, I was not as aware of until recent years, is that, that churches are viewed by, by people often with malicious intent as a, as a soft target. Uh, they take advantage of the family feel of the church, and sometimes uh, people with some very uh, nefarious motives will come into a church. And if they sense weaknesses, they will exploit them, right? And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to, to maintain the relationships that I think are so strong at the church, while at the same time uh, making, making it clear that if a person came in to, to kind of uh, assess how safe our church is, they would realize, okay, this is not an easy place where I could uh, take advantage of this, this system, okay? And so you're, we're going to be a, a little, we've had some policies in place, we just haven't followed them, frankly, because we're, we're so familiar, and I think that's good. We're going we're gonna to try to to, to shift that balance a little bit and appreciate uh, Travis and the security team and Bethany Kids thinking through those things. If you have some thoughts, some suggestions, we'd, we'd love to keep talking about that and, and think through how to, how to balance all those things. Uh, I have been talked to over the last couple weeks. Some people have said, hey, uh, you're not supposed to be back here right now at this time. And, you know, you have you know, some, some identification. I'm like, no, I don't. I'll get it, you know. And that's good, all right? I, I want, I mean, that's, that's I, I, sh- I need to know, okay, these are the times you can be back here. These are the times you can't. And uh, it may seem a little bit weird uh, sometimes, you know, to have a family member asking to see your identification or whatever, but, but that's, uh, sadly, that's, that's the world we live in. And we want to think through all that. We wanna, again, we want to keep, we want to we ask for identification in a very relationship way, you know? <laughs> And, and, uh, and that way, people who'd come in with, with, with um, and, and it, it happens in, in uh, churches, you know, uh, so we want to make sure that people know that, that we love each other, but we're also going to keep our kids safe. If you want, if, if people have asked about this, there's a, I was at a conference and they passed out this book called On Guard, and I got some extra copies of it. And so if, if you want to just kind of think through some of these, I left them at the Welcome Center, and so you can grab that if you want to read through that or, or pass it on. To others. And, and as long as we're talking about children's ministry, you may have gotten an e- e- email this, this past week 
we have some opportunities to, to teach our, our children. There's an uh, opportunity to teach in children's church. Uh, there's an opportunity to teach six times a year. And so if you've wanted to, to serve uh, during this hour, help prepare kids to, to enter into the worship service, that's what our children's church is designed to do. So you can sign up to be a part of that. You can talk to Kim Wibben or email the, the church, and we can talk with you about that. We're in Acts chapter 24, and we're looking at uh, Paul giving his defense against his accusers, the first 21 verses here. And uh, if you're able to, if you would just stand with me as we read uh, these verses together. Beginning in verse 1, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation, in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets." having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an accusation, should they have anything against me, or else... Let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing, that I cried out while standing among them, is with respect to the resurrection of the dead, that I'm on trial before you this day. may be seated. May God encourage us through the reading of his word this morning. Father, we do ask that you would be with us this morning as we look at this text, as we think about your will for our lives, and as we think about uh, making a defense to of ourselves to those who would accuse us falsely. Help us to do so in a way that glorifies your name and proclaims your gospel. We pray that we would see uh, those who do not love you come to know you, to love you, to worship you. And we pray that you would use us to help that come about. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We're talking this morning about responding to false accusations, how we do that as believers. And I was thinking this past week of, of several examples of, of people who have endured 
false accusations. And as I thought about specific examples, I thought it might be wiser to speak in some, some generalities and, and categories of people. And I'm sure that, that you have yourself at times been the, the victim of, of false accusations. I think of, of pastors that I know, friends in the ministry, uh, pastors who have been serving faithfully in a church for, for years, sometimes even decades, and then something just kind of goes wrong in the church. Maybe they make the, the wrong person upset, and, and suddenly they're, they're, they're the victims of, of innuendo, of, of gossip, of, of slander. People are talking about, the, oh, they're all in it for the, the power, or they're abusing their authority, or there's just some, some things that they're accused of through a whisper campaign or whatever, and, and pastors in that situation are often faced with the the reality, of, okay, how, do, how do I respond to this? How do I respond to this in, in a godly way? How do I not uh, make this about my own righteousness or be self-righteous in this, but at the same time deal with this in a way that, that honors God? What do I do? Or, or maybe I think of, of people who are parents, who are sometimes accused of things by, by their kids. As, as their kids get older, and I think of several examples of this, where, where kids will accuse them of, of spiritual abuse or making them go to church or some things they did or, or whatever, and, and the parents are like, okay, how do, how do I res- respond to, to these accusations? Or I know some of you in, in the workplace have found yourself victims of unfair accusations and trying to figure out, okay, this coworker I, I've made upset, and, and now they're accusing me of these things that simply aren't true, I'm finding myself and my reputation is in danger. I'm having to talk to HR. I, like, what do I do in a way to, to defend myself that glorifies God and, and yet at the same time doesn't, uh, doesn't respond in kind? It can be an incredibly difficult thing. Christians are, a, are in a tough spot as we think about how to respond to false accusations. It's tough because, first of all, we know we're not perfect we don't, as we defend ourselves, we don't want to over-defend ourselves and talk about how righteous we are and make the foundation our character. We also, think about this in, in terms of, of positions of leadership, we also, as we defend ourselves, we don't want to create a culture in which people are afraid to, to bring up issues of real concern. So imagine a person's a, a pastor, for example, and, and people are accusing him of, of something falsely, and he, he starts talking about how sinful it is to, to question my, my spiritual authority, and suddenly the whole church is afraid of, of, of bringing up real concerns. And so you don't want to create that kind of atmosphere in a, in a church, or certainly not in a home, right, where, where real sins are, are dealt with and talked about. But then at the same time, if you don't say anything, sometimes the attacks are attacks on the gospel itself. And the gospel needs to be defended. We need to talk about the, the reality of, of, of defending the gospel and making sure that as, as we're attacked, the ministry of, of Christ is defended. Here's what I want us to think about. This is kind of the main idea I want us to think about this morning as we look at how Paul handles this. When dealing with false accusations, what's our goal? When dealing with false accusations, our goal is to tell the truth and defend the gospel. My ultimate priority is not to defend myself. My ultimate priority isn't to defend my own name. My ultimate goal, ultimate goal isn't to defend my reputation. My ultimate goal is to, is to pr- protect the gospel, to defend it, and to tell the truth as I have the ability to do so. We're going to keep looking at this. We're going to talk about how we want to, we're going to talk first about the sting of a false accusation, and we're going to talk about the security 
of a gospel-centered response and then look at some principles as we have time. So let's, let's first of all talk about this. Let's look at the sting of a false accusation, the frustration of being the victim of, of false accusations, and that's what Paul endures here. And so uh, hopefully you're there in your Bibles in Acts 24. We're going to look a lot at the text this morning, kind of look at some, some things that are going on there. So you need to be following along as you have that ability. And let's, let's begin in verse 1. It says it's been five days, and so this is five days after Paul arrives in Caesarea. And it says after five days, the high priest Ananias comes down. He comes down with some elders and a spokesperson. This would have been a, a lawyer, an orator. Uh, it's a guy named Tertullus. Okay? Now, what does just even verse 1 tell us? It's, it tells us that the Jews are taking this very seriously. First of all, they come down pretty quickly. Paul's only there five days before they arrive. Secondly, some very important people come. It's high priest, elders, a lawyer. Their goal is to show Felix the governor how seriously they're taking this. Perhaps they think if we arrive here rapidly, and if we arrive here with enough prestigious people, Felix will say, okay, this is a big deal, and I need to deal with it. It tells us also in verse 1 that they laid their case before Felix. That is, they, they made a formal report about a judicial matter. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about the Roman court as, as far as, as we know what took place in a Roman trial at this time. There'd be kind of five parts of a trial. The first part of the trial is what we encounter here in verse 1. That's when the accusers would appear before the judge, the governor in this case, and they would say, we have a case against this person. And then the, the second part of the trial would be that that person would be brought in, the accused would be brought in. And then the third part would be the accusers that the prosecutor would lay out, here are what our charges are against this, this person. And then the fourth part of the trial, the, the person being defended would have the opportunity to defend himself and say, okay, here are my responses to the things that they're accusing me of. And then the, the last part of the trial would be that the, the governor here would have the opportunity to decide what to do with these charges. And there was a, a, a wide range of discretion the judge had in deciding what to do next. He could say, well, I want to hear more. I want to hear from these witnesses. I want to follow up with this. The, the judge could actually change what the charges were. They say, you know what? I don't think these charges are the right ones. I think these charges are the right ones. And then they could declare them guilty. They could declare them innocent. They could also just kick the can. They could postpone the whole thing. Uh, there's a, a commentary that I read probably every week that I'm studying the book of Acts. It's a, kind of like a social commentary. It talks about the, some of the, the social background. It helps me understand what's, what's taking place in kind of the Roman culture there. It's by a guy named um, Ben Witherington III, which sounds like the name of a guy that would write a really smart commentary, right? Uh, ben Witherington III, and, and he, he talks about how uh, one Roman writer was under arrest for 15 years, and the, the, the governor kept postponing the trial. So that's is actually what's going to happen here, and we'll talk about that later. But So the, the first phase of these five steps of the trial, the spokesperson comes in, uh, Tertullus, and he lays out the charges against Paul. And then the second part of the trial comes in. It says that they laid out their case before Paul, and then verse 2, 
Paul's summoned, that's step two of the five-step process. And then step three begins as Tertullus lays out the charges. You see that in verse two? And listen to what Tertullus says. He begins his introduction with kind of this, 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 this flattery, but it's, it's flattery with a purpose. Listen to what he says. Since through you, this is Tertullus speaking to Felix the governor, we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. Now, Felix was not a nice guy. Felix had been born a slave. He had been freed, and then he was appointed governor by the emperor at the request of the Jewish high priest at the time. And as he was appointed in this position, he enjoyed a lot of favor with the emperor, and so he wasn't really worried about running afoul of the emperor. And so he began to, to rule in this region with, uh, with in- incredible uh, fierceness, and he would stamp out opposition. And whenever there were Jewish zealots or people that threatened the peace, he would act with a, a very harsh hand. Uh, one uh, historian speaking of Felix, would say, Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust, wielding the power of a king with the instincts of a slave. And so what Tertullus says here about how grateful they are for, the, uh, for Felix and his, his rule is not strictly true. In fact, some historians would say that the Jewish war with, with Rome that would take place a little over 10 years or so after the events that take place here, uh, much of that was brought on by Felix's policies as, as they responded against that. But what is Tortullus getting at in saying this? He's not just trying to make Felix feel good about himself. He's saying, look, Felix, you know what it takes to keep things peaceful, and we like that about you. And so if you don't like revolts, and if you want to keep things peaceful, you're going to want to deal with this guy, Paul. And then he begins to, to lay out the charges. And he says, look, I'm going to go, verse 4, he says, I want to make this brief, I want to make this, this quick. And Luke has probably condensed this even further, but gives us an accurate summary of what he says. And then he lays out three charges. And I want you to, to notice what these three charges are, because we're going to come back to these three charges when Paul gives his defense. But number one, here's the first charge. He says, Paul is, is a troublemaker. Verse 5, he says, we found this man a, a plague, a, a pestilence. And it doesn't mean pest like just kind of your annoying younger brother. He means a guy that spreads disease and, and famine and, and, and ruins everything everywhere he goes. We've, we found him a plague. He, he stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world. So everywhere this guy goes, he, he stirs up trouble. Now, if he had been being honest, what would he have said? Everywhere this guy goes, we oppose him violently. But he's not being honest here, right? He says, everywhere this guy goes, he, he stirs up trouble. And that's, that's, that's charge number one. He's a troublemaker. Charge number two, not only is he a troublemaker, he's a, a ringleader. He says he's the, the chief of the, of the Nazarenes. He's, he says he's a, a ringleader of, of the sect of the Nazarenes. And that word translated in the phrase ringleader of the sect means like to be a, a leader of a heretical group. This is not a, a compliment. He's not complimenting Paul's leadership skills. He's saying he's, he's, a, he's a leader of heretics. One time I, I walked into the, the kitchen uh, after a, a workout, 
and uh, one of my children said, started laughing at me, and I, I didn't catch the exact wording, but he, he said something like, it's the king of the dorks. And I said, well, that, that seems very disrespectful, way to speak of your, the, your father. And he said, well, I did say king, you know, like the leader of the dorks, and not a compliment, all right? And so this is, this is not a compliment to, to call him a ringleader. He's saying, look, this, this guy is a, a leader of heretics, and, and he is, he's stirring up this, this trouble. And then the third thing, so he's a troublemaker, he's a, he's a ringleader, a leader of troublemakers, and then the third thing is, is we caught him in the act of, of doing these things. So look at verse 6. He even tried to provide profane the temple, but we seized him. So we, we saw him in the temple trying to profane it, trying to, to, to do his work, and, and we caught him in it. Now, some of you may notice this as you're looking at your text. Some of you may have some additional uh, verses here, the last part of verse 6 and verse 7. These are bracketed in some of your texts. Some of you have them in there, some of you don't. But it goes on in some manuscripts, and it says, that Tertullus continues talking, and he says, We would have judged him according to our law, but Lysias came and with great violence took him out of our hands. Now, sometimes people get kind of concerned when they see verses missing in, in their Bible, but what's happened here is these are some words that a scribe probably added at some point whenever he was copying the story or inserted into the margin, and then the next person copied it in there. Uh, the best manuscripts we have don't have these, these words in them. But whether the verse is in there or not, the, the sense is still the same, right? Tertullus comes and he says, here's three charges. Troublemaker, leader of troublemakers, we caught him in the act. And so then he, he says this, you can examine him yourself, verse, seven, and you'll, uh, verse 8, and you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. Then all the Jews join the charge, affirming that these things were so. Now, Tertullus is a good lawyer here, right? He knows Roman law well. That's why the Pharisees had brought him in, why the, the uh, chief priest had brought him in. And he's, he's, he's telling Felix, you, you need to act here. He's a good lawyer. Maybe some of you watched... Uh, Maybe some people like to watch courtrooms or, or watch some things on uh, you know, famous trials. I watched a little bit of the Alex Jones uh, trial, the, the right wing. Uh, well, I don't like to use that phrase. He's, he's a radio internet host or whatever. And um, he, he had an attorney that, I don't know, I don't know you who are attorney, you, attorneys, you can tell me if he's a good attorney or not. I, I don't know him. Uh, there was a moment in the, the trial where it became evident that Alex Jones's attorney had accidentally given the opposing counsel all of the contents of Alex Jones's cell phone. He gave him the entire contents. Now, again, I don't know if he's a good attorney or not, but that seems like a bad strategy to me. At least that seemed like a bad move. Maybe, there's, maybe he's playing like four-dimensional chess or something, but that seems bad, right? Tertullus, not a bad attorney, good attorney. He's made a compelling case. Look, this is why you as the governor should interfere. This is why you need to, to do something. He's a troublemaker. He's a leader of troublemakers. You need to make an example out of him. We caught him in the temple. You know how crazy things can get here in Judea. Let's, let's deal with him. Now, imagine you're Paul here. It's very disturbing very infuriating 
to, to be the victim of unfair accusations. Think about this from, from Paul's perspective. Everywhere Paul has gone, the Jews have abused him, the, the leaders of the Jews. Some, some Jews have abused him. They've stoned him. They've left him for dead. They've stirred up crowds against him. And now they're saying that he's the one who's causing riots. The, the Jews are, are the ones who are in violation of the law. Even in this trial, they're violating the law. They've, they've, they've done things that are an abomination to God, and yet they're saying that he is the one who's violating the law. You can imagine being Paul in, in this circumstance. The very people who just a, a few days ago, five days ago, were trying to get you killed are now talking about what a troublemaker you are. Uh, imagine how frustrating that would be, right? Imagine in your flesh, you, you know how you feel whenever people begin to accuse you falsely of things. And certainly in our, our culture, it's very, very easy to, to spread gossip and slander and innuendo against someone very quickly. And I'm, I'm sure all of us have, have been the victims of that at, at points. And, and you know how you feel emotionally as people do that to you. And the consequences of, of people talking ill about you are, are potentially staggering. Your name, your reputation, your, your livelihood can be on the line. Relationships that, that, you, that you value can be threatened. There's a sting to these accusations. What tactics do you take to defend yourself? How, how do you not respond with ungodly emotions? When our pride is wounded in the heat of the moment, how do, we, how do we rightly respond? Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 5, to rejoice when people falsely accuse you, how do you do that? How do you have that hard attitude that is responding with joy even when falsely accused? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about the security of a gospel-centered response as our attention turns to Paul and he gives his defense. Look at verse 10. The governor nods for him to speak and, and Paul replies and, and he gives a, a much more measured uh, compliment to the governor. He doesn't flatter him. He says, he says in, in verse 10, I know that for many years you've been a judge over this nation, and so I cheerfully make my defense. That's, that's not a real ringing endorsement, right? That Felix had been in a position of leadership maybe five years in this position, maybe a few years ago in a judge assistant in a different capacity. But he says, look, I've known you've had this position for a while, and so I'm going to make my defense cheerfully. Very faint praise, right? And then he defends against the three accusations. Remember what they were? Uh, the, the, the first charge was that he's a troublemaker. And so he begins to defend that. Look at verses 11 through 13. In verses 11 through 13, he says, Look, you can verify that it's not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. And I think what he's saying there is from the time that I arrived in Jerusalem to the time that I was taken in Caesarea, it was 12 days. And then when they did find me, they didn't find me disputing with anyone. I wasn't starting an argument, wasn't stirring up a crowd, not in the temple, not in the synagogues, not in the city. That, that, that's just not what was happening. I, I wasn't engaging these debates. That, that's, that's not what happened. And what's more, verse 13, they can't prove to you what they now bring up against me. There, there's no evidence that I was doing that in Jerusalem. Nobody can, can say that that was, what was happening because it's not what was happening. So that's his defense against the first charge. The, what's the second charge? 
The second charge is that he's a, a leader of, of the Nazarenes, and they called him a leader of the Nazarenes because Jesus was from Nazareth. This is a, a derogatory accusation. And he says, look, I'm not some leader of a sect. I'm not some heretical splinter group. Now, there are some groups in first century uh, Greco-Roman world that were these, these weird heretical groups or splinter groups, and, and Paul says, no, that's, that's not me. I'm a, I know they are accusing me of that, he says in verse 14. And in verses 14 through 16, he, he gives his defense against this second charge. He says, I, I know that they're calling what I worship a, a sect, but this is the reality. The, the actual reality is I, I'm worshiping God. And then he says three things about his worship of God. He says, I'm worshiping God. He says, I, I worship the God of our fathers. Number one, I believe everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. And so I'm not contradicting the law. I'm not contradicting the prophets. I believe everything written in them. Number two, and, and this is the centrality of his defense, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, I, because of my orthodoxy, because I believe in the law and the prophets, I share with these people who are accusing me a hope in the resurrection of both the just and the unjust. To understand what he's saying in this very short, simple sentence requires this understanding the teaching of Paul on the resurrection throughout the entirety of this chapter and the apostles' teaching of the resurrection throughout the book of Acts. Paul, when he says, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust, is keeping the, the attention of Felix on the gospel message. What, what is Paul's teaching about the resurrection? Well, first of all here, we see as he's teaching about the resurrection, that God is going to judge people. That's what he's telling Felix. There's going to be a time where God judges people. Remember in Acts 17, Paul would say, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he's given assurance to all by, by raising him from the dead. The, the goal of this sentence is for Felix and the others to realize that until faith in Christ comes, they're unjust. So number one, when he says, he's talking about the resurrection here, he's, he's bringing up this truth. God's going to judge people through Christ. Secondly, as he talks about the resurrection, he's saying, look, we need to realize there are no righteous people apart from God's divine intervening work. So God's going to judge the, the righteous and the unrighteous, the just and the unjust. But the reality is there are no just people apart from God's divine intervening work. You say, well, you know, how do you know he's saying that? Well, look at how the chapter continues. We're going to talk about this next week. But look at what he continues to talk about with Felix. It says in verse 24, Felix comes with his wife, Drusilla. Uh, he sends for Paul, and he hears him speak about faith in Christ. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed. Paul, as he talks about the resurrection, says, look, there's going to be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. You need to believe in Jesus because none of us are the, are the just apart from work in Christ. We see this throughout the book of Acts. As the apostles give the gospel message. They first of all communicate the reality that we're sinners who need to turn from sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ. So as Paul talks about the resurrection here, again, he's, he's keeping his defense centered on the gospel. The resurrection means that God's going to judge people. It means that there are no righteous people apart from God's divine intervening work. Romans 2.5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And the, the third thing about the resurrection is there is a need to believe in Christ to receive his righteousness. That's, again, the message that he goes on 
to communicate to Felix as he has opportunity. So, that's Paul's defense. Look, Felix, not a troublemaker. That's charge number one. Not ringleader of some crazy sect. I'm worshiping the, the God of our fathers. I believe in the resurrection. And in fact, I now live in light of that faith. He says, I always, this is verse 16, I always take pains to have a clear conscience towards both God and man. Don't, don't miss verse 16, right? The resurrection, the reality of believing in the resurrection should lead us to, to greater holiness. I live now in light of that faith. The, the righteous who are going to enjoy the resurrection live like those who are righteous. Those whose hearts have been transformed by the gospel live in that reality. The reality of eternity means I want to live with a clear conscience before God and man. The, the resurrection is a motivator for good conduct. Remember what Paul says in Philippians 3? Philippians 3 he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but the, the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained it, this, or already perfect, so I haven't yet received the, the fullness of righteousness yet, and, and that I'll be declared, I've been declared righteous, but I haven't received the, the fullness of the, 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 the new life in Christ until the resurrection. But, but now I'm, I'm, I'm pressing on, he says, to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. For those who have received Jesus Christ by God's grace, there's, there's an anticipation of the resurrection, and we, we live in that in the present. And then Paul defends against this, the third charge. They said he was caught in the act, and he says, no, 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 that's, that's not what happened. He says, verse 17, I'd come to bring alms, that's, that's the gifts to the, the people, to present offerings. Verse 18, while I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple. There weren't any crowd, there's no tumults, but the Jews from Asia, remember these are the, the Jews maybe from Ephesus that we, we talked about some weeks ago. They're the ones who stirred up the crowd, and, and if, if they have something, they, they should be the ones that are here making the accusation. They're not here. Come on. There, there's, no, there's no reason to hold me. That's Paul's defense. He makes his defense about the gospel. And he's sowing the seeds to have a continued conversation with Felix about the truth of the gospel. Why is there security in this gospel-centered response? I think because it allows us to present the truth with a foundation that, that can't be shaken. It gives us confidence that the things we're defending are the right things. We're, we're being obedient to the, the judge who is the judge overall as we focus on the gospel and our defense of our conduct. With that in mind, let me lay out some principles for defending ourselves against false accusations. And as I lay out these principles, just, just a couple notes. Uh, one, I'm talking here about false accusations, okay? 
So these are principles for defending yourself if the accusation is false. If it's true, admit it's true, ask for forgiveness, repent, and and do what restitution is necessary for true accusations, okay? And the other kind of caveat I would give here is there are some times where it's not appropriate to defend ourselves against false accusations, right? You, You can't defend yourself against every anonymous rumor or every mean tweet that someone tweets about you or whatever, right? There's just going to be some accusations you you can't deal with. Proverbs, I think, gives us good counsel here. Proverbs 26 says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. And so when there's some fool, I mean that in a biblical term, uh, railing against you, you know, you you don't don't get down in the gutter and and engage in, in, uh, you know, this this back and forth where there's no real conversation taking place. Don't engage in foolish conversations. But at the same time, there is a time, the next verse says, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And so there is a time for defending ourselves against false accusations, and there's wisdom in knowing when and where, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But here, here are the principles, and I, I, uh, I didn't have these, uh, I didn't have my homework done in time, so these aren't written down uh, for you to uh, see on the, the screen, which is still working. Okay, good job, guys uh, and ladies. Uh, so number one, first principle be, would be this, trust God, right? Trust God. Ultimately, it's his responsibility, to, to defend us and to make sure the truth comes out. As we saw last week, our, our opponents can't shorten our lives one millisecond, right? And they can't hinder our ministry any more than God would sovereignly allow. So, so we, we trust him. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, don't be anxious about how you should defend yourself, what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will, will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. And I think the comforting thing there, the, the comforting reality is that God will be with us whenever we're accused of things and, and we can rely on him. We think about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But listen, this is verse 23 of 1 Peter chapter 2, and, and some of us just need to memorize this. It says, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so when we're falsely accused of things, what do we do? We trust God. We continue to entrust ourselves to him who judges justly and say, look, ultimately, it doesn't matter about my reputation with this group or that group. What matters ultimately is what God thinks about me. Am, Am I honoring God in my response to this? Does he think well of me? That's what ultimately matters. Secondly, secondly, second principle Rejoice in your future reward and cling to the hope of the gospel. Rejoice in your future reward and cling to the hope of the gospel. Jesus would say in Matthew 5, as mentioned earlier, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Why? Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecute the prophets who were before you. And so, if it's true that Jesus, as Jesus says, that our reward is great when people persecute us, what do we do? If we believe that to be true, we rejoice. We say, okay, the the truth will eventually come out. 
I believe in a coming day when, when all things that are, that are false are going to be corrected, the truth is going to be come out, and, and my hope is in that day. As Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, that's a double-edged sword, Right? Part of us takes great comfort in that truth. Oh, it's awesome. Future reward, cling to the hope of the gospel because all truth is going to eventually come out. All truth is going to, all truth is eventually going to come out. Which, for those of us who are honest, also gives us some pause. It gives us great hope that all these false things that people have accused, those are, are going to be dealt with and, and, and the truth is going to come out out, which means the things that the people don't know about are also going to come out, which should give us some fear. What I think this truth does is drives us deeper to the gospel. It drives us deeper in the, the truth that, look, I, I need the righteousness that comes not from myself, but from Christ. If I could take a secret thing that I've done, I could, I could hide it in some place in the deep, dark universe, in a, in a galaxy billions of light years away. It, it would still not be hidden from the, the eyes of God. And what does that do? That pushes me deeper into the gospel. My accusers are liars, but not everything they say about me is a lie, potentially, right? So I cling I rejoice in the future reward, but as I also think about the future, I, I cling to the gospel. The fact that the reason I'm righteous is not because of my own conduct, but because of the, the, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. A third principle here. We want to clarify misconceptions and correct lies in a God-glorifying way. As we have opportunity, what are we going to do? We want to Clarify misunderstandings and correct lies in a God-glorifying way. And so sometimes we want to be charitable. Perhaps there's been some sort of misconception, and so we want to assume that the best of other people is they accuse us of things. They say, look, there's, you have a misconception. Let me kind of clarify that misconception as I have the opportunity to do so. If you're lying about me and I have the opportunity to do that, I'm going to correct that. I'm going to do both of those things in a God-glorifying way. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to exaggerate. I'm not going to fly off the handle and lose my temper. First Peter chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you or speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, again, as I said earlier, we're going to be exercise wisdom in this. We can't respond to every accusation and there's some types of communication that bypass the, the biblical rules of, of how we communicate with people, and so we're not going to engage in some of, those, um, some of those, those silly things that start happening in social media or some sort of uh, uh, some argument with someone who just wants to, to yell at us. We're not going to engage in that. We're going to be careful. And, and what's more, as we think about this principle, what I think that means for us as believers is we're not going to listen to, to slander and lies and gossip about other people. There is a biblical process to talk about the sins of other people. 
And so if someone comes to us and says, I want to tell you about what's going on with, with this person's life, we're going to say, hey, look, why, why are you sharing this with me? Are, are you sharing this with me because you think I can, can help this, this brother or sister? Are, are you sharing this with me because you think that t- together we can, can go with it to them and have you, have you talked with them about this already? Or if you're, maybe they're, they're talking to you about a person in a position of leadership of the church. So are, are you sharing with this with me so we can, can talk to the elders about this? And, you know, Paul's very clear. You need to not accept accusations against a person in leadership, except two or three witnesses. And so are we, are we kind of making sure that we're dealing with this in a, a biblical way? We don't want to create an environment where we don't deal with accusations. We're afraid to, to talk about sin, but we also don't want to, to be participants in, in uh, perpetuating misconceptions and lies. We want to be careful. We want to be careful. And then the, the last principle, we want to keep the gospel, we want to keep the gospel and not ourselves at the center of our defense. We want to keep the gospel and not ourselves at the center of our defense. Paul, as he gives his defense here, doesn't say, look, um, I could never be guilty of something like this, right? Paul is very willing to, to acknowledge his past. Sometimes whenever people accuse ourselves, we put ourselves at the, the center of our defense. Our pride is wounded, and so we're accused of things. We say, look, th- that could never be true of me. How dare you impugn my, my, my good name, my reputation, you know, we're self-righteous in our indignation. I would never do the things of which you accuse me. Now, it may be true. Maybe you would never do the things of which you're being accused. But if that's true, know that it's only by God's grace that that is true. And not the basis of your own character and righteousness. Your character, as good as it may be, is very shaky ground upon which to defend accusations. We want to keep our attention on the gospel. Why? My declaration of innocence by a human court is not of eternal significance in and of itself. Whether or not a court finds me innocent of something or guilty of something, whether an opinion of a person, a person thinks good of me or ill of me, that has no, no eternal significance in and of itself. Like My reputation doesn't save a person or not save a person. Now, my reputation is I proclaim the gospel we want to talk about, but in terms of just my my name, that my, my name saves no one. Your name saves no one. What is of eternal significance is the name of Jesus Christ. No one's going to go to heaven or hell because they disbelieve or believe a story about me or about you. But if someone attacks the gospel message we preach, then we've got something worth defending. We want to do so in a God-glorifying way. I had a uh, debate coach in high school that would sometimes just do some crazy things to rattle us. We also did like mock trial. And I can remember uh, one time I was like playing a, a, a attorney in this, this mock trial and, and she threw a trash can, you know, and just trying to get me riled up as we were kind of uh, cross exam as we were engaged in examining a witness. And she was just trying to, and, and it worked. I was like, what's going on? And I, you know, kind of got flustered. And suddenly I wasn't talking about the, the relevant parts of the case any longer right? Sometimes false accusations can do that. We know what our mission is. What's our mission? Our mission is to proclaim Jesus Christ. 
And we do so through the, the power of the Spirit. What's the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Th- those are, the, those are the, the fruit. That's the fruit of the Spirit that should be being exhibited in our lives. And yet, whenever people start falsely accusing of things, all of a sudden, the, the pride rises up, and we, and we forget what our objective is. Our objective is not to glorify our own name, but, but to magnify the, the name of Jesus Christ. When, when our kids accuse us of things, a coworker accuses us of, of things, we're maybe in a position of leadership in, in the community and we're accused of having these nefarious motives and suddenly our, our dander gets up and we want to we exalt our name. How, how dare you? What do we do? Your child accuses you of spiritual manipulation. You made me go to church. You, you forced me to become a Christian. No, no, no. That's not what happened. As you have the opportunity to talk about it. No, remember, as a family, we, we went to church because... I wanted you to know about Jesus Christ. I wanted you to know about the, the same hope that I have. And just like I, Dad, need Jesus Christ to, to save me from my sins because of who I am, I, I wanted you to hear that message as well. And I would never want to, to force you against your will to, to believe in, in Jesus Christ. That would do no good for you or me to, to force you to say some prayer or something. But I, I want you to see that the beauty of, of Jesus, that, that's how we defend ourselves, Right? Or a, a, a co-worker accuses you of, of, of mishandling funds or something like that. You say, no, no, look, I, 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 I didn't do that. And, and, and I want to be transparent with you. And, and here's, here's proof that I didn't do that. And, I, and, and the, you know what? The reason I would, I would never want to do that is, is because I, I answer to someone else. I answer to, to the Lord. And, and I believe that he has saved me from the, the bad things that I've done, the sin that I've done, and, I, and now I'm, I'm trusting in him. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to spending eternity with him, and I, I would never want to behave in a way that would bring shame to his name. What, what are you doing? You're not making the defense about yourself. I would never take funds because I'm withering ten the third, you know, whatever. <laughs> Poor guy, I don't even know who that is. But we're, we're making the gospel the, the center of our defense. When dealing with false accusations, our goal, we want to tell the truth. We want to defend the gospel because our real aim is to see men and women, boys and girls, place their faith in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son Jesus, the righteousness we have in him, a righteousness that's alien to us but but comes to us through your son Jesus. And Father, we recognize that, that people are going to attack us. They're going to try to uh, distort the gospel message. They're going to accuse us of, of things that, that aren't true. Father, when the accusations are true, I, I pray that you would give your people a, a heart of repentance, that we would be quick to, to confess sin. Father, that you would expose sin w- w- within the church to prevent us against charges of, of hypocrisy or, or wickedness. Of, of manipulation. We, we, we pray that you would bring sin to light. And, and Father, at the same time, when, when accusations are, are false and, and are designed to impugn your name, we pray that you would defend the glory of your name. We pray that you would use us to defend the glory of the gospel in, in appropriate ways. You would cause us to respond to lies with truth in a way that proclaims our hope is ultimately not in ourselves, but in your Son, Jesus. We pray, Father. We, we, I pray this morning for people. Maybe there, there are even some this morning. And we think about that this person who's accused us of things or, or some people. 
Father, we pray for, and, and those things are not true. Father, we pray for them this morning. We pray that you would use our response to those accusations to bring them to faith in your son, Jesus. We pray that we would worship your name in eternity together because of the way we respond to their accusations. We pray this in a way that that only you can enable us to do, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen.